When your deepest dreams crumble to dust, what if you decide not to accept failure? What if you rely on passion and grit to propel you forward? What if the only known is your commitment to achievement because one in a million isn't zero? Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. And today I have the privilege of talking about these questions to Dr. Mike Massimino, NASA astronaut, Columbia professor and author of Moonshot and New York Times bestselling author and regular on the Big Bang Theory and the first human to tweet from space. Mike went from being a gangly, scrawny, working-class kid from Long Island with bad eyesight and a fear of heights to a NASA astronaut where the mission Dr. Massimo participated in significantly increased Hubble's discovery potential and led to the award of a Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of dark energy during spacewalks. So, let's dive into one of my favorite discussions that I have had recently. Before we begin today's episode, I want to invite you to join me and thousands around the world doing my annual Brain Detox Challenge. It's not too late to join. In the challenge, you will be working through my NeuroCycle app over 63 days to rewire and heal your brain, helping you kick off the new year right. There is an exclusive Facebook group where you can ask questions, get support, and find more resources. Plus, each week I host a webinar on the app where I answer your questions and share some strategies and helpful tips. To join, just check out the link in the show notes. Dr. Mike, I am so excited. I've been looking forward to interviewing you. You're amazing what you've achieved, what you've done. And my audience is going to be totally fascinated because it's the first time I'm actually interviewing an, an astronaut and someone like yourself that is just has done so much and has turned your your experience into life lessons. I mean, you have such an incredible bio. So I'm just going to say a couple of things. You're a NASA astronaut, you're a Columbia professor, you're the author of Moonshot and the New York Times bestselling author of and a regular on the Big Bang Theory and the first human to tweet from space. I love yeah. that. That's Fantastic. so cool. Right. Oh, I love that. Well, welcome to Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess and tell us your full bio. People would love to hear who you are, what you do and what you're going to help us with today. So thank you for joining the show. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Dr. Caroline. I sure appreciate it. You, you hit some of the highlights there. I, I grew up just outside of New York City in Queen, uh, just out of Queens uh, New, in New York City in a town called Franklin Square on, on Long Island. I watched Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon. I'm old enough to remember that. And I was six wow. years old. It happened and it made me want to grow up to be an astronaut. But by the time I was eight years old, I just thought that was impossible. How do you do that? I was afraid of heights. It just wasn't going to work. I thought I was going to be a, a military test pilot like uh, my hero, Neil Armstrong. When I was a senior in college studying engineering, I went and saw a movie called The Right Stuff. It's based on a book by Tom Wolfe. That got me thinking about the space program again. I decided I needed to somehow figure out to be a part of it. Didn't know if I'd ever become an astronaut, but I thought at least I wanted to try to contribute and Went to graduate school and started applying when I was eligible to be an astronaut. When NASA made an announcement, I was rejected outright. My first try, a couple of years went by, they made another announcement. They were looking for people. I got rejected outright that second time. The third time, I, I tried a couple of years after. I got an interview, so I was a finalist. Uh, and then I was re- rejected after the interview. I, I failed the eye exam. Went through some eye training, tried to get that overturned, and it worked. And I was able to apply a fourth time, and I uh, was added as a, I was selected as an astronaut 
1996, or the astronaut class in 1996. Got to fly twice on the space shuttle to the Hubble Space Telescope with a spacewalker there. Was at NASA for 18 years and then left NASA to join the faculty at Columbia University, where I'm a professor now and do all kinds of fun stuff. Like you mentioned, some TV with the Big Bang Theory. I do some work at the Intrepid Museum here. Written a, a couple of books. Do a lot of speaking. I enjoy doing that, speaking to audiences. And really, that's where the book came from. The new, the, my latest book, Moonshot, which is coming out on December the 5th. That is based on lessons learned from my time at NASA, but really those, those lessons, those takeaways that seem to be most important to the, the, the audiences that I was speaking to things about teamwork and leadership and not giving up and finding other ways to get around a problem and appreciating what's around us, being amazed by the world around us, getting ready to pivot, things like that, building up trust in an organization. So it was a series of, of lessons that more, more or less told to me by the audience of what, what they responded to the, the most the positively. And uh, that's what, that's what the new book is all about. Mm, that's very exciting. But you also, just one thing that you, you left off, you actually, oh. I'm going to, I'm going to say this because I'm so proud of you for doing this. I mean, you, I love, I love this little thing. You went from being a gangly, scrawny, working class kid from Long Island with bad eyesight and a fear of heights to a NASA astronaut where the mission uh, Dr. Massimino participated in significantly increased Hubble's discovery potential and led to the award of a Nobel Prize in physics for the discovery of dark energy during space walks. That's a mouthful. It's phenomenal. You're a fellow, well, full Italian. I'm half Italian. I didn't even say your first name right, but that is amazing. Tell us about that. Before we dive into all the yeah. great psychology and life lessons, just tell yeah. us about you, your career, the experience, that particular contribution to the to dark energy amazing yeah so I, that that the, the hubble space telescope was launched in 1990 i was not an astronaut then and it was it had five missions there were sh- five shuttle missions after they deployed the telescope to upgrade and repair the telescope and i was on the final two of, of those missions. and but we what we do in those missions is we place equipment to upgrade things Things wear out, you put new stuff in, also new technology comes along and you uh, put that in so that, so the telescope can see further into the universe. So my, what I ended up being good at, I guess, as an astronaut was spacewalking. I really enjoyed that getting in a spacesuit and going out into work on things. And it was, it was glorious being able to view our planet from that uh, altitude doubles a hundred miles higher. For example, than than space station, so we get to see more of a curve of the planet and like looking into paradise. It's like looking into that. I I felt it. We're very lucky to be here. We're you know, such a beautiful place to live, such a beautiful home that we all share. And the mentioned with the Hubble, what was very rewarding about the Hubble is that I I think I felt and so did everyone else involved that it was worth what we were taking to go to space to. To, to try to upgrade the telescope because the, the science that uh, came from the, the astronomy that was done with Hubble and it still is being done with Hubble. And now we all the James Webb telescope, which is very exciting, making more discoveries. They both kind of work together, but mm-hmm. the beauty of the universe, but also how the universe works and understanding not only what's around us, but also how maybe we fit into this whole bit of what, what's going on here with, with our life on our planet and maybe there's life other places or other places that could harm life or 
where did we come from? How, what, what's at the beginning? How did we get here? What's at the, the beginning of the universe? Trying to understand that. How did it form? And we learn more and more about it through, through uh, discoveries made by now the James Webb, but also the Hubble from the past uh, 30 years or so. So you mentioned with the discovery of, of dark energy, that, that was thing that was discovered by using the telescope by astronomers. Things when Hubble was first launched that they knew they wanted to try to, to verify, to find out. Like they thought there were black holes out there, Carol. Yeah. No, for sure. But Hubble found them. And the, right. Yeah, they are. And, and uh, they thought there were planets and other solar systems. People thought that might, that's probably the case. But Hubble again verified that there were. So they would, sure, these are all let's go look for this stuff. But with the discovery of dark energy, what was interesting about that was that it was a group of young astronomers who were using the mathematical data that is provided by the, by the telescope. They were trying to calculate the expansion rate of the universe. So the theory is we had the big bang, that there was an explosion back in the beginning, created the universe and the universe is expanding because it's like, you know, they have a big explosion and things are just going out there. Right? And they thought, because everything else has looked like this up until this discovery was made, is that as you, as things expand, they also slow down. So take a, a, a ball, a baseball, a football, or whatever, a tennis ball, you throw it, it's going to have an initial velocity and eventually it's going to slow down and hit the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the way they thought, you know, what is the, how, what is the expansion rate? How is the universe slowing down in this expansion? And what they calculated was a negative number. So they saw this negative number, they didn't know what it was, and they did some more calculations. Yeah. Found that it was actually speeding up. And so they, with the instrument that we put, they needed to verify this by looking at yeah. supernovae. And we put in this new camera on my first mission called the, the Advanced Camera for Surveys, and that gave them the capability to make the calculations necessary to verify that what they thought was happening really was. And that information led to the awarding of a, the Nobel Prize physics for, for the discovery of, of dark energy. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. And I said, incredible. Yeah. The, the more we, the, the more we learn about the universe, yeah. the more we explore, I think it really comes down to we learn about ourselves and, and trying to understand how we fit in and how we can enjoy the universe and this and particularly the, the, the planet around us because where we live because it's you know, it was it was great doing that work i really enjoyed my time working as an astronaut in space of course but also the the view of our planet and appreciation for how lucky we ought to be here was a big part of my time in space and big part of my time at nasto was lessons that i learned from the culture we had and teamwork because we had to work together mm-hmm. we had ups and downs and tragedies and we made mistakes just like everyone else does but I think we were pretty good at sticking together and working together and learning from our mistakes and trying to have the kind of culture where we could succeed both individually and as a as a team. So that is those are you know, it, was, it was great to find space, but also it was just a great experience and the work I got to do on the ground as well. What a what an incredible overview of a life that is kind of a life that shifts perspective completely. You know, you look at the world in a different way. As you say, if you're floating above, I mean, none of us can visualize it until we've actually been in the place where you have, but to have that view of the world and to have that insight and experience, 
Can you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, you, you've the teamwork, but let's start about talk about your own experience. How did that when you were you up there moonwalking oh. and looking down at what did that do to you and and how you saw life and all these big questions and. Then I'd love to talk about the teamwork and things because I know people are always fascinated with that. And and the teamwork side goes to the culture of community. You mentioned that there is the working together as community, respecting the individual, but the individual is only as strong as the community. And if you look at our current life in America, it's become very individualistic and isolation and loneliness and all those things. And I'd love you to sort of, there's two things I've thrown at you, but I know you're very able to handle both of those deep <laughs> questions because you just speak so well. I love how you teach things. <laughs> no, no. We need to do one at a time, Caroline. One so, at a time. I'll remind you. So the, the first one was what I look Personal. At, your personal. Yeah. yeah. Look, the experience, and particularly during the spacewalks where you can, you're not looking through a window, you're out there, and you're really out there. It's kind of like uh, you know, looking at looking at the fish through the window of an, of an aquarium, right? So, oh, they're pretty fish, but you're at, kind of outside, you know, looking. And then, be or versus being a scuba diver. Now you're interacting with that environment and you can, you're kind of part of it. And that's what I felt like a real spaceman when I first went out for a space line. I was lucky enough to get to do four of those over my wow. And the view of the, of the planet is, is so compelling. You have to stick to doing your work. And in my first spacewalk, I didn't really look around all that much, believe it or not. I kind of stuck to business. My second spacewalk felt more comfortable. It was actually easier. It wasn't as, as filled with uh, activity, the, the second one I was on. And I had a break in the action where I could really just lose myself in the view of our planet. And it was a day past me. The sun was out because you're going around the planet every 90 minutes. So you get your half of that 45 minutes in sunlight, more or less, and about 45 minutes in, in darkness. So wow. there's something illuminating the earth and I could see it very clearly. And the, one of the thoughts I went through my mind was just as like the view from heaven. And then I thought, nah, it's more beautiful than that. And this is what it must look like. And not necessarily, I would think it was somewhat of a spiritual interpretation, but not necessarily religious. It was just, but we were just very, you know, this is beautiful. I can't imagine any place being as beautiful where we are. And you turn your head the other direction, Caroline, and blood. Yeah, you know, it's kind of cool looking at the stars. But, you know, we've checked out the neighborhood. We got nowhere to go. And we've got this beautiful place to live. And you can see the atmosphere. It's so thin. It's just a blue line above the planet. And the size relationship is, is like, if you think of the earth as an onion, the top thin layer of the onion is the size relationship of our atmosphere and the rest of our planet. And that's the only thing that's keeping us alive. The only reason I could, that's because I'm wearing a to life support. If anything would happen to that space suit or if I, you know, didn't have that with me. I wouldn't last very long out there. It'd be pretty quick. Then, uh, then it wouldn't go well. But, but you, you appreciate the, 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 the view of the planet from that standpoint in that space. And you see its beauty. But the other thing, you know, it, it, it stayed with me. But the other thing I think about is also what's missing when you're up there and building the planet. And what's missing is a lot of people. You know, you have a couple of crewmates with you, but, uh, Everybody else is down here. That's where everybody is. That's where your family and friends and yeah. everything. No, we don't have any weather in space. So we don't get cool breezes. We don't get rain. So I try not to complain about the weather anymore. <laughs> Believe it or not, um, you don't get certain smells, good and bad. You, you don't, you don't get those things there. And you're seeing it from afar. It's kind of like you're looking at it and you see, I think the, to see it, it the earth and its true beauty. 
I think it's meant to be seen from a space as a wonderful view, but to really engage it and enjoy it and, and interact with it, we need to be down here. And so what it gave me was an appreciation for how lucky we are to be here. And you can wow. see the of our planet in our life, in the faces of other people. I, I live in New York City. I, I travel and go other places, but there's a lot of people in New York who choose to do that. You go on a New York City subway or yeah. walk the streets. I see lots of people and the rhythm to it. And the things we have built up in this planet, it's amazing, the architecture, the buildings, and then the natural beauty of the planet, our sunsets and the cloud formations and mountains and the oceans and, and the trees. You know, it's all here right now. And so the beautiful color in the, in the leaves of the trees is just incredible. And I, I think I didn't appreciate all of that as much until I, I went to space and came back and and have, I, I, you know, I, I think of the view of the planet and how special that was, but I, I think of what I was looking at was our home that we get to interact with every day. So it's given me a different perspective. I think we're in, we're in a paradise. I know there's bad things happening all the time. And uh, typically it's people doing things they shouldn't be doing. And, and you know, there's terrible things that are going on, unfortunately, in our, in our world right now. But we, we really were set up, I think, for, for happiness. We were given a beautiful place to live with opportunities for, for happiness. And that's, that's what I took away from my experience of, of viewing the planet. Are you battling to get over that afternoon slump? Maybe feeling overwhelmed with everything on your plate? Me too. With all the research projects, travel and events that I have on my schedule right now, sometimes I find it hard to keep up with what I need to do daily, which is why I'm so happy I discovered my new secret mental weapon cognitive switch to add to my mental health toolbox. It's a newly launched ketone ester drink developed by scientists at the healthy aging company Juvenescence. Its formula gives your body the building blocks to create its own ketones, which are an efficient fuel for your brain. They give you a boost in focus, concentration, and even sustained energy without the crash. Cognitive switch comes in two forms, a drink that tastes like a delicious tropical yogurt, and an unflavored powder that I love to mix into my morning coffee as a coffee creamer substitute. I like to add it to my coffee because it creates this instant latte-like consistency and tastes so good. I love using Cognitive Switch because it helps me kickstart my morning routine, increases my daily productivity, work on complete complex tasks, and get non-stimulant energy boost to get through the afternoon slump. I also love that it has real science behind it. Juvenescence actually conducted a clinical study to show that cognitive switch puts you into rapid ketosis in just 30 minutes and keeps you there for up to several hours. It's truly a game changer. And here's the truly exciting part. For a limited time, my listeners can enjoy a special offer of 20% off their order of cognitive switch. Visit juvelabs.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. That's juvelabs.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. J-U-V-L-A-B-S dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf to get 20% off your order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to start your journey towards enhanced mental performance. The link and details will be in the show notes. Wow, that's beautiful. That complete shift in perspective. I mean, I just feel so just listening to you. I just feel a whole new kind of appreciation, as you say, for that sunset and that, and just what we can do and what we've done as humans. It's amazing. It, it, it is amazing and we should be amazed. And the other thing I'll add, that kind of friend, if I may, of course. Um, is that it, and this happened to be more, I think, on my second flight when I started feeling like this, is that I have a different perspective of where I'm from, of what home is. Mm. I've been 
at the beginning, I'm an American. I'm also an Italian citizen. I was an American first. I've only been a couple of years as an Italian citizen. My, my Italian heritage allowed me to apply for citizenship. Beautiful. Like but, but I think of myself now differently. I have, I'm a citizen of the earth. And what happened was it was really the way I thought, I think about things is that when I was a little kid, I grew up just outside of New York, as I mentioned, in Franklin Square, just outside of Queens, New York. And that's when, when I was a little kid, you know, when my school was there and park I played in in the library and my block and home and area. That was where I grew up pretty much through high school. I felt that way. And when I went to college, I I, I started, I think I started to feel more like I was a New Yorker because you meet people from different parts of the country and yeah. the world. I identified as a New Yorker. Then as an astronaut, certainly I had the American flag on my own both states when I went to work and flight suit or wherever I was doing. And I was an American, you know, I'm from the United States, right? And but after going to space, and it was it was on my second space flight that I began to think more like this. Looking at the planet, I started to think that more of that's where I'm from. You know, you look wow. at the universe, maybe, but you look back and you see home. That's home. Wow. And everything I've ever known and all the people that we know about that have existed have all been in that one place. And all of us are still here. I mean, we go to space once in a while, maybe we'll start sending people to the moon again, but everybody still is here. We all share that same home. No matter where you're from, no matter who you are, what part of the world you live in, we're all from that one place. And that's when I think of home, I think of Earth. I think I think of that, that is, and it's a place that we all, we all share that same home. We have that same, we have that in common, no matter where we're from. So that, that was the other thing. It was not just that we're living in a paradise, but it's a paradise that all of us call them. That's really beautiful and very, very, very moving and also so important a message that needs to be screamed from the rooftops of every single, if you look at all the, it, it takes away that, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that just from listening to you speak now, that there's no cult, the cultural divide, all these divides that are in the world and all the arguments about politics and, and not accepting each other. It's just such a waste of, Time, energy, beauty, love. You know, just hearing you talk, I mean, at least I think like that anyway, but just seeing it now, trying to see it through your eyes and hear what you're saying, it just shows the unity of, of humanity and this beautiful planet we live on. And, and if anything, that's the message that you try and I assume you're trying to bring to people. Absolutely. And the way you put it is, was, was, was beautiful as well. I, I, I agree. And it, it, we are we are giving these I think giving this this beautiful place to live and we should be appreciative of it and and I think if we can think about think of it in that way that mm. we all share I think that would be good I don't know if we'll oh. ever get there. I think we will eventually but it might take it's it's it, it might take a while but a key thing that I'm hearing you say often a word you said a lot is perspective and that perspective is vital you know in terms of the world that I work in. And the field that I've been in, one of the major things that I had to teach my patients, myself, and the research I do is being able to stand back and and take and and teach people to actually get another perspective. I actually call it the multiple perspective advantage. And as you were describing that moonwalk, I almost feel like I want to quote you and say, I have spoken to Dr. Mike and he talked and it was just such an amazing analogy because it's it's key to us as humans being more human is being able to stand back and look at ourselves and get another perspective and when you do that, you become more open, more expansive, more accepting of different types of people and cultures and listening to other people's points of view instead of fighting. And that's sort of the sense I'm getting from you, which is... Mm -hmm. okay. I agree. <laughs> yeah, keep totally. going. 
So uh, now, so now you you lecture at. I mean, one of the things you do now is lecture at Columbia University. So obviously you. Okay, tell us what you're lecturing in and what do you talk to your your students about? Because I know it's probably science related stuff as well. But do you mm-hmm. find you get you get into the deeper things of life? I'm I'm very fascinated to hear mm-hmm. you. What are you lecturing on as a professor? And then we'll come back to that question too. I haven't forgotten it. Yeah, okay, because I've already forgot it. So you I got it. I got it. <laughs> Don't worry, I got uh, you. Thank you. I so my my position at Columbia. I'm a professor at Columbia in mechanical engineering. And I teach a few classes. I teach a class currently that in the fall, I teach aerospace human factors engineering, which is understanding how, uh, how, a, a per, what a person needs to control a spacecraft or a robotic system or an aircraft and the information they need and how to display it and how to interact with it, how to use automation. So it's a human factors engineering class directed toward aerospace applications. It's a lot of stuff that I did. This is a little more academic than my, the other class I do. This is it's a little more theoretical, but it's, it's some of the things that I studied in, in graduate school when I did my, my doctoral research in at MIT was in that area, human Amazing. machine systems. And, and then also I put in the stuff that I learned at NASA as an astronaut and flying airplanes with NASA and so on and spaceships, wow. robot systems and doing space. So try to interject that there, but it's really about human machine interaction. The second class that I teach in, in the spring is called Introduction to Human Spaceflight. And that's covering everything from the history of the space program to the space environment to what it takes. It's, it's around people's human spaceflight. So it's how do you save them space? How do you nerve them, keep them entertained, keep them productive? How do you design spacecraft or spacesuits based on the, the psychological part of it, but also what we need for life support, what we need to live? Well, how you should design a spacecraft or a habitat or a, a laboratory in space and how we can use, how we use technology in that area too to support people in space. So it's everything about human spaceflight. That's my second class. I teach that in the spring. And then I also teach a short course each semester for a first year student in rocket building, which is kind of Oh, fun. I love it. We do that. Yeah. So that's kind of more like a fun. It's for first year students, for freshmen who are interested in mechanical engineering. We, we, you know, we, we design rockets and build them and launch them. So, so that's what I do. And I also advise the space club that, and that is very gratifying. The space club was started by a couple of students, was in my third year at, at Columbia and was approached by a few students and they wanted to start a club. They didn't have a space club. We don't have aerospace engineering here at Columbia, but we have okay. every other kind of engineer. The aerospace is a little more specialized and. There's an interest in, in those, those applications and our students as electrical engineers, mechanical engineers or civil engineers, they can certainly participate at, at any level they want to as engineers in the space program, but they wanted to get a club together to sort of harness that interest in across the school. And so I agreed to be their advisor, of course. And that was the initial three students came up to me. That was back in 2015, so eight years ago. The club now has grown to over 400 members and across the school and they've done some amazing things. They've competed in rocket competitions. They have flown two experiments in wow. space. One on a Blue Origin vehicle, which is Jeff Bezos's company. Another one they flew on a SpaceX vehicle to the space station. It was only two years ago they did that, and they were able to fly, the, fly their experiment in space and then get the results back from the space station. So this is pretty extraordinary stuff. But it's, there they have about 12 different projects that they work on. Yeah. There was about, like I said, over 400 students, but there are about 
300 who are active, meaning that they show up to every meeting. Oh, I love it. Meetings every Friday and fills a gigantic classroom. And then they have, you know, they kind of talk about what's going on overall in the club. And then they work on their individual projects on Friday afternoons. So that's been really gratifying because it's harnessed a lot of the, the brain power we have here in the interest in the space program at the university. So I, I, those are things that, those, that's what I'm doing at, at Columbia. Pretty much. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm fascinated. It's it's incredible. I, hopefully one day when I'm in New York, I'll be able to sit in on one of your lectures. I'd be... Oh, I love it. You I won't understand a word, but I'm certainly going to listen. No, Colin, if you don't understand that I'm not doing my job, it oh, is yeah. not, it's not meant to be an overly technical class. The only numbers in the books that I refer to are the page numbers typically. It's not It's not very theoretical. It's more practical. And it maybe it's more, more answering your question that it's I'm, I'm actually, what, my title, my official title is Professor of Professional Practice, which means I wasn't hired of my, when I was working as a professional yeah. assistant professor at Georgia Tech before I became an astronaut. That was a tenure-track research-oriented teaching as well, but yeah, could have a lab and research. In this case, it's more that I was hired with based on my professional experiences. So I try to relate my practical experience engineering-wise especially, of what it took to design a spaceship or build a spaceship or fly in space, but in very practical terms. And they get enough of that theoretical stuff in their other classes, so I try to, I try to give them a more practical understanding of how things work, at least in the, in the space program. So you're welcome anytime. Uh, you've convinced me. I'm coming. I, I'm so excited. I'm not doing my job if, if you're not able to understand what I'm I'm already one of your students now, so I can't wait to come and do I cannot. I cannot wait to come and learn more. So this is going to be, this is my challenge. We're going to be in New York next year. You're going to see me. Oh, so I'm going to keep in contact I with you. So I'm very yeah. excited. Well, this is incredible. And I just, I love how you've humanized the whole experience as well. And, and you know, you just like this, I've got questions for you. I've got all kinds of things, but I'd love you to touch on those, those, the tips and um, the way that you describe your book, that yeah, you or your team described your book on Amazon, you, you touch on four points that I know will touch everyone. So can we, before we do that, oops, I mustn't forget question number two. Question number two was the team thing. And I wanted to talk about that because you mentioned individuals operating within a community and community being like the primary thing and the community is only as, individuals only as good as the community and you have to, to survive. And if we look at our world now, people are dying from loneliness and the United States specifically has really got bad when it comes to an individualistic society and we've dropped community behind and we know all the research and we know from all the blue zone work and we know from mental health that we need community. So could you just talk about that on on Mm -hmm. being on a spaceship and how that would apply and what lessons we could learn? Certainly, Caroline. And it's interesting that you picked out those two things, like viewing the planet and how it affected me. And also the teamwork part of it, because that's what I really wanted. That's why I really wanted to become an astronaut. Those two things. It wasn't oh, the other. It was, I wanted to, I wanted to experience space flight and view the planet and, and do that first human. But I also wanted to be part of a team that had a shared mission and would take care of each other and do something really cool and do it together with people that I respected and liked and, and, and loved really, really you form that bond between your, your Very colleagues. It's, it's really unique. And it, it kind of, I think in our case with the, with the astronaut, and I wasn't disappointed on either account. And when I think about what I miss, I miss the space flying, but I also miss being a part of that team. And I would say I miss that even more. And I, I see my, uh. friends, 
seen a couple of my they, two days ago. We had a, an event for it was a, an, an Omega watch event because they're like the, our watches for the space program, right? So I, I moderated a panel at this event, and it was Charlie Duke who was a moonwalker. There's only twelve people walked on the moon; only four are still alive. He's the youngest wow. still to be on the moon, and he's eighty-eight wow. years. And we need to get some. Need, need to get more people up there. So, yeah. but, but he was there and my friend Peggy Whitson, who has more time in space right. than any American. My friend Mike Lopez Alegria has more time in spacewalking than any American. And my friend Nicole Scott, who flew both on the space shuttle and on the space station. And it was just wonderful seeing them. And I never worked with Charlie, wow. Apollo guy, but still you have that, that bond. Bond. That's mm-hmm. astronauts. And last night, my friend Paul Lockhart, an, an Air Force pilot who was in my astronaut class, very good friend was in town. I did an event with him too. So that was kind of fun. I got to oh, wow. friends in town here in New York. And and that's what I miss. I miss being yeah. people where you have that that focus and you really care about each other and you care about what you're doing and you realize you cannot be successful unless you work together. And I think that's, that's so good. the culture of the military. And I think, you know, the military has different aspects of its culture, but I, at NASA, I think we were exposed to the good things. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they bad things, but but what I saw was was all pretty good. And that was in the idea that you, you don't throw anyone under the bus, that we need to do this together. If you're good at something, your job is to help those who are having trouble. And if you're having trouble, your job was to admit it and to get to seek help. And I was introduced to so this, good. Caroline, the very my, my very first week at NASA, what they had warned us about when we were selected. So we were selected and we you get a phone call and they tell you, oh, we want to be an astronaut. Of course, you said, yes, this is there. Don't roll the hurdles. You get the good phone call and then you get a package of information in the mail that tells you things you need to do moving to Houston. And one of the things they said right on the, in the cover letter, right after congratulations was the next paragraph was priest practices swimming. And they gave us all these requirements. We were going to have to take this swim test. And I was like, what? Because we were going to have to pass a swim test. In order to go through water survival training with the Navy and we needed to go through this water survival. Wow. Training. We were going to be in ejection aircraft. So we would have to learn how to get out of an airplane. If you land in the water, you have to, you have to survive until they can come and find you. Right. So there's a survival oh. force for that. And also for the space shuttle, one of the abort scenarios, which wouldn't have been pleasant would be to bail out of the spaceship and land in the, you know, parachute into the yeah. ocean. Like survive, you got to come get you. So you got to keep yourself alive before they find you. Yeah. So this wow. was a fence, but I was like, oh man. And I was kind of glad they didn't ask me. There was no swim test before because I was not a strong swimmer. But they gave us a warning that practice, get ready. Yeah. You don't want to not pass this, and you won't be able to, you know, continue with the rest yeah. of the class. And I was so I practiced, but I wasn't feeling good about this. Carol. I was not a swim or by any means. Yeah. Voided the water most of my life, actually. Whenever, whenever I could. Anyway, I show up, uh, you know, this first week was a lot of administrative stuff. Mm-hmm. And on the Friday of our, the last day, that first week, the Friday of that first week, we're about to go home for the weekend. There's 35 Americans and nine international astronauts. So 44 of us are going to, we're in our astronaut class, largest class NASA ever had. Mm-hmm. Jeff Ashby, a Navy pilot from a class ahead of mine is kind of helping us understand our training. He was like our sponsor, you know, he's going to yeah. help. Or we need help. And uh, he comes in and he says, okay, that first week's over, but uh, you know, next week the training starts in earnest. And uh, I want to remind everyone that 
the first thing we're going to do is the swim test. On oh, Sunday. gosh. I was like, I was like, come on. Can we have like a math? Give me a break. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, this is how we're going to start. And I wasn't so much, I figured I'd somehow get through this, but I was, I'm in here with all these high performing people and these military test pilots and well, people with a Navy dive qualification. I mean, there were some serious oh people here. And here I am, you know, I'm going to be bopping around like the nerd ball and I'm going to be laughing at me. <laughs> so I was like, oh boy, here we go. And Jeff continues, he goes, who are the strong swimmers in this class? Who do we have? And a couple of people raised their hand. And then, then he said, more important, who are the weak swimmers? And don't lie to me, I need to know. And so I raised my hand and so did some others. And then he went on to say, if everyone didn't raise their hand, can go home for the weekend. But those who raised their hand, the strong swimmers and the weak swimmers, you're going to stay after class and you're going to arrange a time to meet at a pool over the weekend. And the strong swimmers are going to help the weak swimmers with their swimming. Because when we go to wow. the pool one day, don't want to leave that pool until everyone passes the test. And I think it was a very clear indication of where I was. That in no way wow. was, you know, I'm oh, not in a world where I'm better than you and I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to bury you. you Competition. Know, yeah, yeah. That's not it. In fact, now I was entering a world where, where you could be, you could be Michael Phelps and set a world record. But if he lets... If one of your classmates died, died, I'm sorry, that's not a good thing. If one of your classmates failed the test, yeah, talking about dying right now, but if one of your classmates failed the test, then you also fail. And in my end, I didn't want to be the guy who's holding up everybody else. And that's another key point was wow. that you needed to admit that you needed help. This is brilliant. You don't want to hold everybody back. And there's no shame in that. So the culture mm -hmm. we have, there's no shame in not being able to do something. But you better, you better let people know about it so you can get help. And no one's going to hold that against you. We got together over the weekend and it was actually fun. We surprised. Oh, wow. But we were at my friend Peggy Whitson invited us over to her pool. Yeah. We all practiced and I got a lot of pointers and we got to the pool on Monday as a, as a team and everybody passed and it was actually enjoyable. And I wasn't, people were not annoyed that they had to help me. It wasn't like, you know, we're irritated. We have to help these yeah. people. That's just who we are. And then there were times maybe there was something that, that I was able to help with. And it was my opportunity to do that for other things. But, but that's the, that's the, what, what set it up right at the beginning. And that was the, 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 the culture, the attitude we had where individual accomplishment is great. And that's all wonderful. But what really mattered was how you performed as a team because in space, I love this so that's life, I would say. As in life, and oh, yeah. what we do, you don't do it alone. And if you think you can do it alone, you, you, unless you're, you know, some is, I don't know, in some special cases, when you really think about it, it's really hard to do things by yourself, especially in the complicated world we have. And to build that sort of culture was, was I think, the way was key to us being successful. But more than that, though, Caroline, it was such a wonderful way to go to work. And you oh, wow. are with the people and, and that, that you can, you can count on that. I, like I, I said, I had, I mean, I see one of my, one of my colleagues that I work with that I flew in space with for a couple of years and I'll see them again. And it's like no time has passed. And that's a wonderful way to go it's through life. Beautiful. You know, that there's a whole group of people that you can count on. I sometimes refer to it as your mission control center. When the chips are down, reach out to your mission control center and be mission control center for other people. And there's really nothing we wouldn't do for each other. And that, I think, 
You don't have to wow. fight it to get that. That's something that an organization, a team, no matter what you do, whether you're a financial business or law firm or an engineering company or whatever, in medical field, whatever it might be, you can you can try to replicate that that type of culture and have that same thing. Oh, this this message that you're speaking needs to be out to everyone because this is fundamental to it's so important. It's just vital because it's not happening. It's the opposite's happening. It's it's the opposite. It's all about me, myself, and I. It's it's a, a culture of competition as opposed to what you're saying, a culture of enhancement. I mean, look at that how you went there that weekend that the the strongest one is as strong as the weakest link and and how no one's left behind and you you I mean that's what we we supposed to be doing. So these life lessons that you have are absolutely vital for the current climate that we're in at the moment. And I mean children at school, the politicians, everyone should be hearing this. This is extremely important and really we'll do our best to get this message out as much as possible because the story that you tell attached to it is just I, I can relate. Everyone can relate to that story. And it makes you feel it's why people watch movies. I mean, it's really, it's what, it's why people will listen to you because that is what we want and what we need and what we know is the right thing. Yet we're doing the opposite in, in the majority of this culture. So yeah, this is, it's going to help so much. It's a huge, massive help, mental health help just to be working on those kinds of things instead of labeling and medicating and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Absolutely wonderful. Well. I love it. I'm, I'm so enjoying this conversation. If you haven't already gathered from that, so it's just amazing. So, well, let's jump over to your to your book. This one in a million is not zero. The odds are against you. Do it anyway. Yeah, I, that's fantastic. One in a million is not zero. Go for it. Well, the, the fun thing about the book was that these lessons that that I learned in these stories that seem to resonate, like what we've been talking about. The book gives me a chance to kind of give the backstory to a lot of these things in a little more depth. Yeah. The one in a million not that it's not zero is my is the first chapter. And that that came out of that's something that popped into my mind when I was in grad school at up at MIT and I was almost finished with my PhD, which was was also not an easy I failed my qualifying exam at MIT the first time I took it and, and did not do well and my my advisor, when I, when I got the news that I had failed, I usually get a second shot. And he, he said to me, well, you know, you're you're entitled to a second shot in six months. You can try again, but you did so poorly. But the committee was thinking it might not be worth your while. Oh, my gosh. And all right, let me think about it. And I thought about it for a day or so. And I went back and saw my advisor. His name is Tom Sheridan. He's still alive. Yeah. And Kind of like a father figure for me, and and you know that kind of warm. Kind of, he was a good guy, and I said, "Tom, I figure what the heck, I'll give it another try." And he kind of smiled and he looked at me and he said, in a very professorial way, "He said, you know, Mike, if one can learn to live with indignities in life, one can go far." Is what he said. And I think, "Oh wow, that's so cool! You know, I love that." That was cool. I never forget him saying it. But anyway, that was that's you know, I kind of had this idea that things don't always work out. We try again and you keep going. And but the astronaut. Things just seemed near impossible. It was thousands of of high qualified people. How do you even get noticed? You know, it's amazing. They, they were back then. You were getting seven or eight thousand applications to pick a handful of people. How do you? And the only people qualified to do the job. How do you pick this one out? And I had been rejected outright, as I said once. And I was about to get rejected a second time because you can't. There are certain things that you don't get called in for an interview and yeah. the interviews. 
they haven't told you no yet, but you know the answer is going to be no. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. So I knew that news was coming at this one point. It was it was in April of, of 1992, and I was maybe March. It was March of 1992, and I was about to finish up my PhD, try to get that done. And I was working at at home in in, the, in my apartment. The news was on. Uh, that was the news. It was a, it was the the Academy Awards you were on, and uh, in the background and. They did it. Billy Crystal was the host and they went to a, a downlink with the space shuttle. They had like a, a, a statuette, an Oscar Academy Award statuette. They're spinning it around, right? Because any, but see, anything that had to do with the space program was like a magnet drawing me in. So, of course, that's what I was doing and went and watched the television. And as I was watching these astronauts on the space shuttle kind of floating there doing this PR thing, public relations thing, I, I knew with clarity that's what I wanted to do. The thought went through my head. That's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. Knew it. I knew it it, with such clarity. Then Caroline, I would say just a moment went by and the next thought that came in my head was, but you'll never get to do that. That's impossible. It's Mm -hmm. impossible. You can't, you'll never get to do that. And I thought about that and I had this fancy degree that I was getting from MIT and I was like, well, it's not really impossible. It's just very unlikely. And maybe the odds of me being successful at, at getting to be an astronaut where it was one out of a million. That's not zero, Cameron. That's I love it. Number. It's zero point. There's a decimal point. There's a whole bunch of zeros, but there's a one at the end of exactly. it. Exactly. I love I, it. And so that's one. It's not zero. And that's my... That's absolutely not zero. Just a very low probability. It's unlikely, but it's not zero. And the only way that that one disappears and also becomes a zero and your probability of success is by definition zero and you know the outcome for sure is if you give up. As soon as you give up or you don't try, that's it. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And I kept that in mind that, you know, the odds are against you, but, but do it anyway. And even if it doesn't work out the way you expect, if you're yeah. if you're pursuing that goal, I thought about this after my after I interviewed my fourth try. After I got that interview passed, uh, wow. I, I was waiting for the news. I remember I was on spring break with my family. I was teaching at Georgia Tech, and we went for a trip for spring or spring break. I think it was uh, Saint Simon's Island, one of the islands they have over yeah. there, Georgia, and. Uh, and I remember, you know, there with my kids and I was thinking, you know, if I get told no again, I'm going to keep trying. But I ended in a pretty good place, you know, because at that point I got my PhD. I had some work experience at NASA and got to apply experiments in space. And I had gotten this position at Georgia Tech where I was teaching and really liked that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I'm going to keep trying because the path is pretty good. You know, the journey is pretty good. And I think that that's important. Because even if you don't achieve exactly, if it didn't work out, you will probably find yourself in a pretty good place anyway. And as opposed to if you if you give up. Once you give up, it's like Yeah, that's not good. It's unthinkable. So that's what that is all about. And that's the first that's, you're just an absolute inspiration, really. It's <laughs> absolute inspiration. I'm I'm loving this so much. Okay, the thirty second rule. Yeah, this is a good yeah. one. So this is there's it's this is not in the book, but this is a side. The thirty-second rule is, but my friend Woody Holberg, who is a, about he's, he became an astronaut twenty-one years after I did. We're, we're about twenty years age difference, 
And he Love came for Frenzo and he came, he, he did a downlink with the Space Club last spring when he was. That's in amazing. Space. He got back in September and he wanted to come visit the school and meet with his students. And we had a, a glorious time with him there. And we did, you know, a little, little discussion of power. And then we opened it up to panel discussion. We opened it up to the students and they asked him, what did you learn as an astronaut? What's the most important thing you learned as an astronaut? And he said, I learned how to be comfortable with making mistakes that you're going to mm-hmm. fail at things and you have to become comfortable with it because you, you can't dwell on it. You can't make too much of it. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Now, that's what he said, because that's yeah. what I felt too. I don't know if that's the best thing I've learned as an astronaut, but or the most important thing, but it certainly was an important thing to learn because we would make mistakes mm-hmm. and torture in this cadence of trying to get the job done. And you don't have a lot of time. I mean, sometimes you have time to, to, you know, we can figure this out, but sometimes like on a spacewalk, you don't have a lot of time when something goes wrong or you break you something. You fix it fast. You don't have time because you're going to, you know, you just can't stay out there forever and you're on the clock and life support and all that other stuff. Yeah. So to dwell in the misery of a mistake is not a good thing because you're more likely to make another mistake. You're not going to, yeah. you can't drown in that misery and we all feel bad. And so the way the, the culture we had was everyone's going to make a mistake. We can't prevent that from happening. We can try. We're going to watch out for each other. But when they happen, we're going to, we're going to let them pass and we're going to deal with it. So the 30 second rule came from my friend Megan MacArthur was my crewmate, taught it to me. And she had learned it from CJ Sturk, our Marine pilot that told it, taught it to her. CJ, I talked to her about this. He said it was. He says it was, 30, give yourself 30 seconds of remorse. I call it 30 seconds of regret. I changed a little bit, maybe, but kind of the same thing. But what yeah. is it? You a mistake. You're going to make mistakes. So when you make them, this is, this is how I learned to deal with it, is to give yourself a 30-second second period of time, set a mental timer, and beat yourself up as unmercifully as you'd like. Call yourself every name in the book. I'm the stupidest astronaut. How did I make this mistake? I can't believe I did that. Why didn't I think of this? Why did I didn't do this differently? Why did they have me here in the birthplace? I don't know why they selected me. It was a stupid idea to have me go to space in the first place. Don't vocalize any of this. Keep it to yourself. This is an yeah. internal rant because you'll scare yeah, people. Yeah. But for 30, <laughs> whatever you want to yourself, and then it's over. And it's officially in the past. And you have to engage and, and be a good crew member. And don't wallow in that misery. It's in the past. Done. We're not going to bring it up again. We're going to try to fix whatever happened and move forward. Leave your mistakes in the past. Let the, that mistake pass. And we used to say that, but I didn't know how to do that until I learned the 30 second rule because I did want to be, I did want to get mad at myself. So 30 seconds, cap it there and move on. So that's the, that's the 30 second rule. Brilliant. And this, I love that. I'm going to use it. And there's so much psycho neurobiology behind that as well, because if you, if you keep it in, it just makes you worse. It messes up all your neurophysiology oh, and your yeah. wisdom and you can't think straight and you can't. So by doing that, you get it and you, so it's good. Get it out and yep. then move forward. And that's, that's the underlying. I love it. I love that. That's really okay. great. Thing. Or, yeah. Cause yeah, you all into me. It's going on for weeks. I mean, I would beat myself yeah. up days or weeks. Oh, I can't believe that happened. Nothing you can do about it. There's no time machine. You can't go back and fix it. No. So that's it. Move forward. You Deal, learn. move. Don't do it again. You know, learn from it. Maybe that might, you might need to adapt your behavior if you're doing things a little bit too cavalierly and you need to change the way you're approaching things. But don't wallow in that misery. It doesn't, it's not going to be productive. So good. So good. I love these. Okay. Be amazed. 
the universe is an incredible place. Stop what you're doing and look around. Love it. Yeah, that's similar to what we were talking about in earlier. the beginning. In the beginning, but it's it's we are so lucky to be here. The and the the Hubble has shown us the beauty of the universe. But even what we have around us is is just is is it's just so amazing. And I and that's I I think like when especially with the pandemic when we were kind of stuck inside a lot yeah. and I think we lost a lot of that of just getting mm-hmm. around people and being engaging with the outside world. It is a miracle that we're here. It's a it's a miracle we have this beautiful place to live, and we should try to enjoy it as as much as we can. So that's that's where that came from. There was beautiful. a time on my when on my very on one of my one of my first spacewalk, I, I had this this sense of you know what is the what what is this all about? And so you what what is the what is what is the Earth going to be like when I get out there and look at it? And the pilot on my first flight was, was a classmate of mine. We're the only two rookies on a flight. His name was. Dwayne Carey, Digger was his nickname. And he he made me make him a promise that as soon as I got in the airlock after my first spacewalk, I was going to tell him exactly what it was like out there. Because he wasn't going to get a chance to, to see the same thing out. He could look yeah. at was like, what's it like? I really, I'm not going to be able to go out there, right? But you can tell me. And I got in the airlock and he's there right there ready to for the right time. The only would take my helmet off. Yeah. He's right in my face and there we got the suit depressed so everything was safe to, to take the suit off. And my helmet pops off and he's right there in my face. And he says, what was it like? And I said, Digger, you won't believe it. He goes, what? I go, the Earth is a planet. He's like, what? What, you know, what was going on? And I go, it's a planet. You know, it's not that we think of the Earth as a safe cocoon, but it's not that at all. It's, it's, it's a planet. You can see the Earth and you can look and you can see the stars and the moon and the sun, black sky. And as you go around the planet, 90 minutes, uh, I said earlier, it's about 45 minutes of sunlight, which is beautiful, bright sunlight. It is like a pure white light. Uh, I could see things so clearly. I I remember looking down at the colors on the American flag on my arm, and it just was so beautiful and vibrant. Beautiful light. Not being filtered through the atmosphere or through a window any longer either when you're inside the spaceship. You're getting the direct sunlight. And then in the darkness, it's the darkest dark I've ever experienced. It's like the absence of all light. And the only way to do your work is for the helmet lights and lights around the spacecraft illuminating that. And the the temperature swing between in space between direct sunlight and darkness is about a it's about a four hundred degree swing. It's about a it's over two hundred degree Fahrenheit in the sun and about minus two hundred darkness. You don't wow. feel because you have your space in our Spaceship and so it modulates that, and you have a temperature control valve. You have cooling water around you, so it keeps you at the right temperature, so you don't get too hot or too cold. But you feel the change in the temperature before you see it. So if we're mm-hmm. we're on dark side of the planet because it's nighttime, mm-hmm. feel the warmth before we. See. It's kind of if you're in the ocean or in the water, and you feel a warm or a cold current, and you feel like down in your bones. That's what it was like. So you, you'll feel the warmth and then you just wait a moment and then you'll see the sun. And I remember seeing it in space the first time. That's the first time I saw the sun in the black sky. And then you look back down at the planet and there's a line where it's dark on this side and it's bright on this other side. We call that the Terminator. And that's because nighttime over here and it's sunlight over here. And you're looking at this and that line is moving. And it's just tracking across the planet. 
And what that is, it's the planet's rotation as it shows another part of itself to the sun. And on the other end of it, it's there's a part going into darkness. And the the motion of that, the 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 dance between the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, and this is going on for billions of years. And we'll, it was a permanence in it, Caroline, that just staring at that motion, there was no hesitation. There was no hiccup. It was just this smooth, this gigantic planet just moving at this steady pace and always never, never, never stopped. Just total continuous, steady, constant motion. And it is miraculous. And we think of the a sunrise or a sunset as being beautiful. We see the sun come up and the, you know, the, the sun go down at night and the sun's not going anywhere. We're the ones that are moving. <laughs> and it all has worked out to create this beautiful place that we get to live in. And so I think we should be amazed every day that we get a chance to be here. If you have listened to my podcast for a while now, you know how interconnected the mind, brain and body are. This is why I strive to do my best for my health mentally and physically. And one of the ways I like to do this is by taking Senolytics as part of my daily mind management and health routine. It's a class of ingredients discovered less than 10 years ago, and they've been called the biggest discovery of our time for promoting healthy aging and enhancing your physical prime. You see, as we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells cause symptoms of aging such as aches and pains, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle age feeling. Also known as zombie cells, they are old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore, but they are taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing and dead leaves off a plant, Senolytics can help remove these worn-out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. This is why I use Qualia Senolytic. I take it just two days a month and feel so much more energized and ready to take on the day when I wake up. I love that the formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to be complementing one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. It also comes with a 100-day money-back guarantee. Resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com forward slash leaf for up to $100 off and use the code leaf at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com forward slash leaf for an extra 15% off your purchase. Thanks to Neurohacker for sponsoring today's episode. The link and details will be in the show notes. Oh, there's not a day's not going to pass that I'm not going to stay amazed. You just painted such a picture for me. I got completely consumed and absorbed, and I would have been that guy there. Tell me now, in your face, this is this beautiful. It's amazing. It's just like if people could just grab the joy that you're generating from what you've your experience. It's 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 life changing. So, wow, thank you, thank you for sharing that so beautifully. Well, we've got time for one more. When okay. to to know when to pivot, change is inevitable. Yeah. Accept and embrace it. I, I, once again, another fa- fabulous statement. Yeah, I think that uh, that comes out of my experience, both personally and with the how the space program pivoted. Toward the end of the space shuttle program, it was time to move to another spaceship. We knew it was, we had the second accident on space shuttle Columbia, and it was we knew it was time that we were going to have to get another another spaceship. And NASA took that opportunity to start working with commercial enterprise like companies like SpaceX. Mm-hmm. Build a spaceship. And we were like, are you serious? Like, Matt, she's not going to be in charges. We're going to like hand that off. Big shift. One thing. What are we doing? 
And we've now seen the, I mentioned how much have flown things in space and it's opened up the opportunities for economic development. Yeah. And we really were on the edge of greatness, but at the time we didn't realize that really. No, well. it's difficult to see that shift. We don't like this idea. And yeah. it was so much automation that was going into the new spaceship. There we, you know, we weren't happy with that either. You know, we wanted to be in control of things. Yeah. But we started realizing that the automation and the new technology was actually much safer than what we had had. It was going to keep us alive, give us a greater chance of, of surviving uh, accidents than what we had before. And okay, that, yeah, and the reusability of the other technology that they were going to be incorporating was going to bring the cost down so that more people can go with less training and open up all kinds of opportunities for growth for both NASA and for the private sector. So, but that was hard to accept that at the time and change is coming. You gotta, you gotta realize that that's happening and get on board with it. Not, you know, not if it's a really obviously bad thing, but just yeah, you know, yeah. the new technology and new way of doing things that the world changes, that people change. You can't stay in the same spot. You, you know, think you might, it was great for a while, you know, the, for 30 years, a space shuttle flew. I was there right in the middle. I didn't, I didn't know that mm-hmm. when I, I ended up joining right at the middle after the first 15 years. And then the last 15 years was when I was here and then a shuttle had retired. So it's, I think, I think a great spaceship and a great program, but it, it had come to an end. And as said, we, as we were about that, we needed to accept what was coming next. And then the other part of it, I think is, oh, good. which is, yeah, yeah. I mean, change is there, accept it, get on board or else you're going to be left behind. You got to get out of the way. And he, the other part of it was knowing when to pivot in your life, which is, is kind of hard to do, especially in my case for me. This is something as talked about. I wanted to do since I was a little kid. Since I was six years old, I dreamt about growing up to be like Neil Armstrong. And yeah. I didn't quite make it there. I didn't, you know, I didn't become a test pilot, but I did become an astronaut. You and did a lot. I did a lot. I got to meet Neil Armstrong and become yeah with them. And this is my. But I, 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 you know, I was able to do that. I got this this yeah. great opportunity to to fly in space, and I I got to fly to Hubble twice and. And, uh, contributed to dark matter to understanding. I mean, well, that's massive. I was very happy and very happy to be and proud and thrilled to be a part of the whole team. But as time goes on, things change and the way you feel about things change. And I would never have thought that there had been a time that I felt like I was ready to leave the astronaut office when I first started. But the first indication I had, Caroline, that it was time mm-hmm. to think about a pivot was the end of my second flight, we had a couple extra days in space because luckily the weather was bad in Florida. We couldn't come home. Mm-hmm. So we basically two extra days with nothing else to do except look out the window. Oh. And I looked out the window and it was glorious, listened to music oh. and enjoyed the view and got to think. And the thing that, that the, the emotion that came over me that I never thought I would experience was satisfaction. I oh, felt like wow. satisfied. With what had happened, I was so grateful for what I had gotten to do, and I started thinking, "I'm not." I didn't have that same like, "I got to go to space again." I want to do this or that. It was kind of like, "This is pretty cool." I'm so happy for what has happened, and I felt satisfied. And that was kind of weird. And then coming back from that mission, I just started thinking about other things that I might do, and the 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 most telling. Sign. And I think we tell ourselves things by our actions when we're put in a, in a position where we have to make a decision. When my friend Peggy Witcher, who I've mentioned a couple of times, 
was the chief of our office. She was the first female and the first civilian to be the chief of the astronaut office. My good friend, I just Beautiful. saw her. Well, she was here in New York. Really good friend of mine. Beautiful. She calls me and she said she wanted to assign me to a long duration flight on a Soyuz to go to the space station for six months. And she laid out the plan. It was going to be three years of training, most of the time out of the country, which would have been fine. You know, that's, that would have been great. But my kids were both, Daniel was about to start high school. Gabby was starting to finish up, but I would have missed it, both of them in high school pretty much. I felt like, and then I would have been in space for six months, would have been okay. That would be great, of course. But I, I thought about it and I just didn't have that that strong desire to go. And Peggy said, take a day, think about it and come see me. And I thought about it, about it with my family a bit, but it was my decision to make. And I went in to see my friend the next day and I said, Peggy, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to tell you no. And what I felt was, is that to do something like that, to fly in space and do it correctly, I think to do it the right way, you've got to want to do it really badly. And I, I, I said, I'm, I'm willing to eat dirt to do that. I'll do it. You know, I won't do anything illegal or immoral or I, you know, unethically go anywhere there. But I would, I would have sacrificed or done whatever I felt I needed to do, try my hardest. And, and, you know, and that's, that's what it takes, I think, to be successful at things that are difficult. Yeah. And I just didn't have that burning desire. I said, Hey, I, I don't think my heart's in it. I, I don't think I, I don't, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, but I don't think I'd be happy. And I don't think I would do a good job because my heart wouldn't be in it. And she says, I understand. I'm going to keep you in mind for other opportunities. I'm disappointed, but I understand. And I walked out of her office and I realized that there was a, a before and after to that moment. Wow. I realized that that was it. That, I, you know, what was I telling myself? What, you know, my, what my, what my heart and soul was saying to me that you've had enough. It's been a, it's a good run and maybe it's time for something else. And then I started thinking more seriously about what am I going to do after? And I think that I appreciate this conversation we're having because to me, it's an example of what you can do after the great experience. That's, yeah. I started to, you know, I worked as a, luckily I had the experience working as in academics as a professor at Georgia Tech. It was only mm-hmm. like, in the year that I was there, but it, it gave me the opportunity to, when I got selected by NASA, to know that there was something that I thought I could, you could go, go back. Yeah. Had to. I didn't think about that until I got to the end of what ended up being the end of my career at NASA. But I, and I talked to a few different people. I don't know if this is going to go out on YouTube, but behind me, you can see yeah, this. This is a lithograph painted by my friend, Alan Bean, who Beautiful. was the person who walked on the moon. I talk about him a lot in the book. He became a good friend and mentor. And he had a second career. He was always, he had this left brain, right thing going, right brain thing that I don't know. Maybe you can understand it. I've never seen anywhere. <laughs> With such a, such technical ability as a engineer, test pilot, an astronaut, but also be able to paint so beautifully and be able to describe things so beautifully artistically. So he dedicated the second part of his life, almost exactly half, the second half. Wow. I would speak to him and get advice and other advice from other people about, about everything, you know, whatever was going on in my career. And, and so I, was spending some time with Alan afterwards and when I was after my second flight and, and he was saying, don't look at it as an ending, look at that as another phase and, mm-hmm. and stay at NASA. You could go into management. You can still try to fly. One of my classmates is still flying. Don Pettit, who's older than me, is going to turn 70 years old in space. In a couple wow. That's incredible. Years. So you could still, you could stay there. You can go and to do other things, but 
said, look at it as another opportunity to do something really special. And so I thought of what, what could I do? Where could I could still feel like I was contributing, but still be part of the space program and be happy. And the answer for me was try to go back to, to teaching and writing. I didn't have done any real writing at that point and, and talking about it and sharing the experiences and, and cause it was an extraordinary run. And yeah. so I feel very grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. And that's, that's what I decided to do. And I think there's always that twinge of regret, like, ah, never could have, you know, what it would have been like if I was staying. Yeah. I, but I think, uh, in, in my mind and in my heart, I, and that was the right decision at the time. And if, if you make the right decision at the time and, and you question it, I, I think that's normal. But over time, you realize that, yeah, that was the best, that was the best decision to make. And so it's where I ended up. And it's, it's hard to know when it's time to do something else, but I, Listen to what, what you're telling yourself. Look at your actions. You know, and I knew I wanted to be an astronaut because, and I wanted to be part of the space program because anytime I walked by the newsstand and there was an, an article about space or there was something on television about space or someone would say something, I could tell in my heart that I became alive. It was like a different level of consciousness where there was something to do with Thank the space you. program that was in me since I was a little boy. And I think it was the same thing when it was time to leave that it was, you have to listen to what am I telling myself with my actions? It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that, you know, life, life moves on and you, you, you go through different experiences. And even though you would never thought, I would have never thought there was a time to, to pivot. There was. And that's the way it worked out. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy about the way it went. It was a tough decision, but, but I'm happy with the way it all turned out. Oh, wow. I only have. I have words. I hardly have words. Wow. I'm glad you pivoted because otherwise, how are we going to learn all this from you? Because you have, you're playing a completely different role in the world as well. That, all that experience. I mean, you know, you know how, how I describe this particular podcast. And I inter- I have interviewed many, many people gloriously satisfied to take your words. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was, I mean, and I'd have to have you, you've got to come back again because I, I just, there's so much we can talk about and it's been fantastic. And, Thank you for what you chose to do for your pivot because we now can learn so much from you and reinforce those lessons and, and walk out of here amazed, really amazed at how beautiful it is to be alive and to be alive on this planet. And so thank you so much, Mike, for being on cleaning up your mental mess today and helping us just see the world in a different way. It's been such a pleasure, such a gloriously satisfied pleasure. <laughs> well, thank you for being such a great host. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for helping all the people you help and, and having me be a part of that as well. Thank you so much. And last thing, very quickly, where can people get hold of your book and get hold more, learn more about you and maybe invite you to come and speak? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to get a hold of me, if, you, if you're interested in having me or reaching out, whatever it is, contact me about it. Uh, speaking or an opportunity or just to say hi or whatever it is that you want to, you want to contact me about is best to go to my website, mikemassimino.com is a way you can contact me there. There's also, you can order the book, Moonshot, NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. I think I got that right. Yes. It's available you, got that right. you know, any, anywhere you want to go, your local bookseller is great. If you're able to do that, if not Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere else it's out there. And if my website has those options as well, but wherever you, you're accustomed to buying your books, you'll be able to find, you'll be able to find Moonshot. Fantastic. Well, we'll have all those links and details in the show notes for people yeah. and people can look forward to hearing 
hearing you back again on my podcast and you'll see me at one of your lectures for sure. Well, thank you, Caroline. You're welcome. <laughs> well, keep in touch. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Mike. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline E. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.